Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, we just thank you so much for drawing us together as you have today. And I pray that you would make the difficult things plain, that you would speak, Lord, we, your servants, are listening. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. I'm glad that you could join us again as we look at these different questions that come up from time to time about the Christian faith. In this session, we're going to be looking at a question that a lot of people wonder about, and that is, is Christ's resurrection fact or fiction, and is it really important? Now, I want you to know that even some religious leaders struggle to answer this, but our authority does not come from what men decide. It comes rather from what is in the Word of God. And when we look at Scripture, it becomes apparent from what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection of Christ is really foundational to the Christian faith. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14 that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. In verse 17 of that same chapter, he went on to state, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. So from that, I think it's clear that it's vital that we as Christ followers come to an understanding of this particular aspect of our faith. As Christ followers, we believe that Jesus was put to death on the cross and was buried, but on the third day, Christ rose again in accordance with the scriptures, and that event is known as the resurrection. I think the first thing we have to ask is, do we have any information outside of the Bible that speaks of the resurrection of Christ? And in fact, we do. Josephus was a Jewish historian who was born in Jerusalem four years after the crucifixion took place. Importantly, he was not a believer in Jesus, but lived in the very same area within a few years of the events having taken place. Many people who had been a part of what had happened were still living, and so eyewitness accounts would have been easily available to him. This Jewish historian writes in his account of that time, found in the Book of Antiquities, chapter 18, verse 63, At this time there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders." And the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. So you see, we find this report even from those who did not follow Jesus at that time. 
So let's address then the usual alternative explanations to Christ's resurrection. The most common one is known as the swoon theory. This theory maintains that Jesus didn't die on the cross, but rather he merely passed out and was presumed dead. However, after having been placed in the tomb, they say, the cool air revived him and he later snuck out to go on to live a full and happy life in hiding. Well, if you really consider this theory, I believe logic easily deals with it. Firstly, the Romans were efficient at killing, and one of the reasons people were scourged before being crucified was because the blood loss hastened their death. The whip, or flagrum as it was called, was specifically designed to remove the flesh from a body. It consisted of several thongs embedded with metal and bone that were specifically designed to tear strips of flesh up. Many people died of the lashing, but apparently Christ did not. After the torturous walk out of the city in his severely weakened state, He was nailed to the cross by Roman soldiers who themselves would have been under the penalty of death should the execution be unsuccessful. Being soldiers, they were familiar with death. They knew how to ensure it and they certainly knew how to recognize when it had occurred. John chapter 19 verse 31 to 33 speaks of Christ's death. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Many people do not realize that death by crucifixion came as a result of or through asphyxiation. The weight of the body on the arms put the diaphragm into such distress that the person could not breathe unless they pushed themselves up by the nail through their feet long enough to gasp a breath. That's why the religious leaders wanted their legs broken. It was to hasten death so that the bodies could be taken down before the special Sabbath that was coming. These soldiers who were so familiar with death were convinced that it had already occurred to the point that they did not break Jesus' legs. John 19 verses 34 to 35 declares instead One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. However, to ensure that death had occurred, one of the soldiers thrust a spear into Jesus' side. There were many witnesses gathered at the cross that day, and John was one of them, who was able to give eyewitness testimony to the fact that the jab of the spear 
brought a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, any medical professional will tell you that the appearance of what an untrained person would call blood and water means the clot and serum of Christ's blood had separated, which is something that only occurs at death. It's proof that death had occurred. Afterwards, tightly wrapped in linen, the body was placed in the tomb. Matthew 27 verses 63 to 66 tells us that the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate, saying of Christ, While he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. The religious leaders knew that Christ had said that he would rise from the dead, and they were determined to make sure that didn't happen. So at their request, the Roman army made the tomb as secure as possible. Not only was the stone heavy and unable to be moved by someone as injured as Christ had been, it was sealed. Additionally, the guards at the tomb knew that according to the rules of their military service, should they fail in their mission, the price would be their own death. Matthew goes on in Matthew 28 to tell us that the guards felt an earthquake and they saw an angel move the stone. In fact, Matthew 28 verse 4 says the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Going on in verse 11, we're told that once they had recovered, they immediately went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we are asleep. If this report gets back to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this is the story that has widely been circulated among the Jews to this very day. Do you see how the soldiers had to hide the fact that they'd lost the body? They didn't go to their commanding officer, but went to the chief priests instead, because they knew that they would believe them. Whereas their centurion would have likely had them killed for falling asleep on the job. The Jewish religious leaders needed a different story to be told, and so they offered to come up with some sort of scheme to keep the soldiers out of trouble. No one knows what eventually happened to these men and whether or not they were allowed to live out their days and spend their sudden windfalls, or if shortly afterwards perhaps they died quietly by a concealed blade in a back alley of Jerusalem. After all, drastic times call for drastic measures. We do need, however, to consider a second theory as well, the conspiracy theory, 
which says that the disciples stole Christ's body and lied about him coming back to life. Is that a reasonable possibility? The first problem is that the disciples were fishermen, pitted against well-equipped soldiers who had a vested interest in carrying out their orders. Okay, so you might say, well, wasn't one of the disciples Simon the Zealot, who had once been part of the patriotic Jewish group that resisted the Romans? Perhaps he would have been able to arrange something like that. Well, no Christ follower ever confessed that this had been a hoax. Come to think of it, no bystander ever reported seeing something irregular going on that night either. But more than that, the disciples' character was proved by their deeds. All but one of them were put to death in horrible ways for their testimony concerning Christ's resurrection. If you're wondering, the Apostle John was the only one to die of natural causes, and actually that wasn't for lack of people trying to kill him on numerous occasions. If the resurrection was a lie, it was of no advantage to them. If anything, it made their lives a lot harder because of the persecution they suffered. But they were willing to suffer and even die. Why? Because they knew it to be true. Now, you may say that even today, people are willing to die for an ideology. But you have to understand that those who die today die for what they've been told is true. By contrast, the disciples would have had to die for something that they personally knew to be a lie. You'd have to be mentally ill to do that, and there's really no testimony to suggest that any of them were. Actually, quite the contrary if you read their writings. And if this was just a made-up story by those who believed in Jesus, if he had not risen from the dead, why didn't the religious leaders simply produce the body if it was still in the tomb? Some people might argue that perhaps there was a real Jesus who died, but who did not rise from the dead, and that the disciples mythologized all that happened. But this couldn't be a myth. For one thing, myths take time to develop. Some might argue that the story was changed before it was written down. But we now have gospel fragments that we know date back to within just a few decades of the events. We also have the testimony from people who did not follow Jesus, like Josephus, who confirmed that this account was well known around the time that the events actually happened. Actually, Peter, who was one of the Lord's closest followers, clearly stated in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But there's one other thing that's important about the resurrection account. In John chapter 20, we're told that the first people to discover that the tomb was empty were the women who followed Jesus. Peter and John were then called to see the empty tomb, but once they'd left, 
Mary Magdalene stood outside the tomb crying. John 20 verse 14 to 18 states that she turned around suddenly and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Once she recognized Jesus, he essentially told her not to try to hold on to things as they had been, and he commanded Mary to then go and tell the others of his resurrection from the dead. Accordingly, verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. And there it is, an incredible proof of the truth of the account. In that day, women, even Jewish women, were held in low regard. Legally, they were not allowed to give testimony about anything. And yet, it is a woman who is first entrusted with the news of the resurrection. And I think from that, we not only get a clear picture of how Jesus restored and valued women, but it gives us positive proof of the fact that the gospel writers were merely recording the truth of what happened. For if the disciples had made the story up, or if the accounts had merely been turned into a myth, there is no way they would have chosen a woman to be the first one to bring the news of the risen Lord. No, they would have given that job to one of their most prominent men who would have easily been believed. If not Peter, then perhaps Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, who had both been on the Jewish ruling council. But they didn't, because the truth of the matter is that the Lord chose a woman, and all the gospel writers did was report the truth of what had occurred. One final question one might be asked about the resurrection is that isn't it possible then that people like Mary Magdalene, for instance, were just hallucinating? And usually reference is made in that case to stories heard about someone who's been overwhelmed with grief at the loss of a loved one, thinking that they'd heard their voice or that they saw them on the street. The question is, could that have accounted for what the disciples said they saw? Were they perhaps just hallucinating because of their distress? Well, I think that that is unlikely for several reasons. If one person saw him, you may suggest it was an hallucination. But Jesus appeared to whole groups of people at the same time. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 8. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters 
at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. People don't coincidentally have the exact same hallucination at the same time, but as many as 500 people saw him at once. Not only that, but when Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth, most of those witnesses were still alive. Only a few had died, which is really what Paul means there by that they had fallen asleep. In other words, this could be corroborated. The story could still be checked, and yet still the belief in the resurrection of Christ persisted. Additionally, hallucinations are usually extremely brief. They don't go on for hours or even days. They don't include whole conversations. Acts 1.3 says that Jesus appeared to his followers over a period of 40 days and told them many things they did not know about the kingdom of God. What I'd like to do is look at two final scriptures about Christ's post-resurrection appearances. The first is found in Luke 24 verses 36 to 39, when Jesus himself suddenly stood among the disciples. Verse 37 goes on, They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Do you see how afraid they were? But he let them touch him. A vision or an hallucination doesn't have real substance to it. Not only that, but he ate something in front of them as well. Going on to assure them in verse 44, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Well, one of their number, Thomas, wasn't there that day, which I always like to say goes to prove that you should never miss a meeting. <laughs> but John twenty twenty six to 28 tells us, that a week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. 
Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus not only had substance and could be touched, but he was also clearly recognizable. Surely, if the disciples struggled to believe their eyes at first, they could have gone to the tomb and looked at the body. Also, wouldn't the religious leaders have produced the corpse to refute their story if it was still there to produce? I think we've proved that if you really think through the challenges to the resurrection account, logically they don't really hold any water in the end. So in the words of Sherlock Holmes, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. The question is though, why would Paul say that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins? Why is settling this so vital to our Christian faith? Well, we know that according to scripture, Jesus, the Lamb of God, suffered the punishment that should have been ours. He was forsaken so that we would not have to be. His death paid the debt to God the Father for our sin. But what proof do we have that Christ's sacrifice was enough to reconcile us with God the Father? Is there anything that irrefutably proves that what he did on the cross was truly acceptable? Do you remember the Luke 24 passage I just read? Verse 44 detailed Jesus telling them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then in verse 45, he went on to say, that Jesus then opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. The resurrection of Christ had been spoken of in Old Testament scriptures, and it had also been foreshadowed in the law of Moses with reference to the sacrificial law. There were several special feasts of the Lord celebrated on the Jewish calendar each year, and all of them pointed forward to what Christ would one day come to do in a spiritual sense. One of those yearly celebrations that's actually still celebrated by Jews today is the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. This was the only time of year that the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies in the temple. He would take the blood of the sacrifice into God's presence an act that would temporarily reconcile the people with God for that year. Because, as we are told in the book of Hebrews, the blood of animals could never take away sin. It had to be repeated again and again. But if the sacrifice proved to be unacceptable or imperfect in any way, the high priest, when they entered God's presence, would die. And Jewish tradition tells us that they wore a rope around their ankle so that they could be pulled out in the event that that happened. The only way the people knew that the sacrifice had been acceptable was if their high priest returned to them. Now, Christ is not only our sacrifice, he is also our great high priest. And we know 
that Christ's blood is sufficient to reconcile us with God the Father because Jesus, our high priest, has returned to us. The resurrection is essential to the message of the gospel because it proves that the blood of his sacrifice that was offered to God the Father was, in fact, sufficient to cleanse us from all sin and reconcile us to God himself. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the resurrection of Jesus Christ that proves that indeed his sacrifice was acceptable to you on our behalf. Thank you that by it we have been reconciled to you, we are accepted in the Beloved, and we can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence to find help in our time of need because of Jesus and all that he has done. It is in his precious name we pray and thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.